0: Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. And here are the evening's headlines.
1: The chair of the Wisconsin Board of Nursing resigned from his position to protest Governor Evers' <coughs> veto of a bill to expand the practices of advanced practice registered nurses. That bill would have allowed nurses to, among other things, issue prescription orders. Board chair Peter Calio explained his regna- resignation stating that quote removing the unnecessary barriers from advanced practice nurses would increase access to quality care with no changes this issue will get exponentially worse with time unquote. During the COVID-19 pandemic Wisconsin's Board of Nursing had removed many unnecessary barriers to advanced practice nursing by emergency rule This allowed more people to access care that may not be available in the future
0: The Associated Press is reporting that Michael Gableman's investigation into the 2020 elections will be paused while five lawsuits play out. The suits will not stop him drawing a paycheck, however. Gableman will continue to earn $5,500 a month. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said the investigation could be revived if courts rule that the election officials and others must comply with the subpoenas issued by Gableman. Gabelman's review of the election was originally slated to end in October, but Voss has granted numerous extensions, the latest of which was through April 30th. Last month, under pressure from Donald Trump, Voss allowed the contract to go forward indefinitely. Of the five lawsuits, three relate to alleged violations of open records law, while two challenge his subpoena powers as a special counsel appointed by Speaker Voss.
1: 28 months after the Madison School Board renamed Glendale Elementary School to honor the late Virginia Henderson, the school community celebrated the change Tuesday night, according to the Cap Times. Dr. Virginia Henderson was the school psychologist at Glendale from 1976 to 1991. Following her work at the school, Dr. Henderson served as the Assistant Superintendent for Diversity and Equity for six years. After her retirement, she continued to be active in community and educational work until her death in 2019.
0: And those are the day's top stories. Now, on to the rest of the day's news. Though last night's jam packed meeting at the Madison Common Council lasted more than five hours, we've managed to boil the developments down to just a few minutes. First, we'll take a look at the Council's approval of the sale of 18 holes of the Yahara uh, the, the Hills Golf Course to the County of Dane for use as a future landfill. Here's Cameron Costanzo.
2: Last night, the Madison Common Council voted to approve the sale of part of the Yahara Golf Course to Dane County in order for the county to develop its next landfill and sustainability campus on the property. The legislation stipulates that the proceeds from the sale, about $5.5 million, will go to the city's long-struggling golf enterprise fund. John Welch is the director of the Dane County Department of Waste and Renewables and says that the criteria for the landfill site is twofold.
3: That is really governed primarily by uh, regulatory requirements, the DNR, um, locational criteria for things such as um, hydrology, geology, setbacks to private wells, um, and things of that nature. A piece of this uh, project, uh, about 25, 30 acres, is a sustainable business campus or business park. And that'll be uh, a place where we'll have businesses such as mattress recycling, potentially plastics recycling, compost, uh, food waste organics, potentially in the future. Um, And when you look at that piece of the um, project... A uh, business park like that has certain needs. It, ha- it needs sewer, water, electricity, uh, internet, and uh, close proximity to haul routes.
2: Currently, Dane County estimates that its current landfill only has enough room to be operable until 2030, at which point the county must have another option for Dane County solid waste. Though the current landfill has an estimated eight years left of capacity, leaders on the project says there's still a tight deadline If the county also approves the sale, the contract is negotiated out by both the city and county to determine the details of the development and incorporate resident feedback. The county must also get the requisite state licenses before it can build, a years-long process that leaves little time for delay. Dane County Board Chair Patrick Miles says, If delayed, the county might be left without a functioning landfill and will pay much more to have trash hauled elsewhere. Neighbors, though, voiced their complaints about the plan. Residents of the Secret Places neighborhood and members of surrounding McFarland pushed back on the plan, citing concerns about odors and safety of particulate matter in the air surrounding the landfill. One Secret Places resident described feeling devastated at the thought of a new landfill opening close to her dream home after moving in November of 2021. Dane County Board Chair Patrick Miles says that the county will likely approve the sale, which has already been recommended for approval, at their meeting next week, Thursday. But Supervisor Miles says he's had reservations about communication of the plan.
4: My concerns were that the site selection um, should have been a much more transparent process that provided for stakeholder engagement. Stakeholders would also have included um, representatives from the various neighboring communities. That didn't happen. It was a very staff-driven process. And I think as a consequence, public trust has been undermined.
2: But he says there's still chance for input during the planning process.
4: If the parties at the table can't come to an agreement, then basically the sale falls apart. But the locally negotiated agreement is very important. It's the vehicle by which the neighbors' concerns will be addressed um, because it's where the county basically has to sign the dotted line saying, you know, they'll address mitigation. If there's impacts to property values, you know, there's an obligation for them to, to make people whole. Questions around traffic patterns, environmental concerns, all those things are terms that can be agreed to in a locally negotiated agreement.
2: Reporting for WORT News, I'm Cameron Costanza.
1: Meanwhile, residents of the Madison area may have a high-speed rail option in their near future, in spite of past failed attempts to bring the service to the city.
5: WORT reporter Katherine Garvins has the latest. Taking the train to Chicago can be fun, but if you live in the Madison area, you currently have to do a bit of a two-step to reach the track that takes you there. You can drive north to Columbus, east to Milwaukee, or south across the Illinois border to Harvard to hop Amtrak's Hiawatha line to Chicago's Union Station. Last night, the Madison Common Council authorized funding for a study to advance the plan to eliminate this two-step that will also provide rail service directly to Milwaukee. WORT reported earlier this year that interest in the line between Wisconsin's two largest cities was renewed when the federal infrastructure bill passed in 2021. When Amtrak released their maps for expanded rail across the country, Madison was on that map. The initiative is high on the list of the mayor's priorities, as she mentioned at the time. It started with Amtrak, right? When Amtrak released their most recent plan for building out their network, they included Madison on that map. And that's a really key piece of this. And so now with them saying, Madison is on our map, we want to have a station in Madison, we want to come through Madison... I think that's a really key piece, so that's one important uh, piece that that I think helps make this a reality. The other important piece is that there is funding in the bipartisan infrastructure law for rail transport, for passenger rail. The $120,000 study was introduced in the Common Council last night and moved forward without debate, authorizing the next steps in working with the chosen vendor. Philip Gritzmacher is a transportation planner for the city of Madison, and he says that the chosen vendor is an ideal partner for this project.
6: HNCB is a nationally renowned vendor of planning services for rail. They worked initially on the high-speed rail project uh, when that was going on in in the uh, 2010s. We, We feel comfortable and confident in their ability to work on this particular project. They have a great deal of experience working with rail.
5: The study will build on several passenger rail studies released in 2021, Amtrak's plan recommends extending the Hiawatha service to Madison, potentially with four daily trips. The U.S. Department of Transportation's 2021 rail plan contends that passenger rail service to Madison is key for the Midwest. Gritzmacher says that the contractor... HNTB will help the city take the next critical steps for plan approval.
6: They will help us determine where the best station location would be, update some of the background data from the the previous studies that that we have had related to high-speed rail, and then work with us on our public engagement process to make sure that the public is on board with the location that they identify.
5: The city is targeting early 2023 for approval of the location of the new train station. In the meantime, work to build on previously completed infrastructure to support the venture will continue.
6: Well, there are things that are going on concurrently, uh, so we're certainly reaching out to our, our partners uh, in, in other communities that would be on the corridor and uh, you know, with, with other related agencies to try to, to make sure that uh, we have all of our ducks in a row. A number of the improvements needed to make this happen uh, were, were actually completed back around uh, 2010 uh, when high-speed rail was being discussed, as a part of that effort. So uh, many of the track enhancements have been made, uh, and some of the, uh, the, the support infrastructure, such as a maintenance facility, w- was built.
5: Charles Miyazi represents part of Madison's north side and sits on the city's transportation committee. He says that while rail connecting Madison to Milwaukee is needed, he's also a proponent of similar light rail systems within the city. Next stop for the project is discussion with the City of Madison Transportation Policy and Planning Board and Finance Committees next week. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Katherine Garvins.
0: So it wasn't all trains and golf courses last night. For a compendium of the other items discussed, here's our producer, Nate Wegehill. After around two hours of public comment, last
7: night's Common Council meeting covered everything from medians to the Police Civilian Oversight Board to even the controversial destruction of a local church. Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church, which sits at 2165 Linden Avenue on the city's east side, is slated for demolition with a new apartment building to be built in its place. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the church initially reached out to the development company Threshold Development to look at selling the church due to money issues. They agreed that in place of the church, the company could build a three-story apartment building at the site, offering around 30 apartments. The church has given their blessing to the demolition of the church and the building of a new apartment building. The congregation merged with Lakeview Moravian Community Church last year. The item led to almost an hour of discussion, the longest of any item discussed at last night's meeting. There was vocal opposition to the project from area residents, objecting to everything from aesthetics of the building as compared to the rest of the neighborhood, to the desire for more single-family homes. Overwhelmingly, though, last night's public comments were filled with people concerned about the precedent set by building an apartment building in the area. Barbara Becker is a resident of District 15 near the church.
5: Um, And as someone who's lived in my house for over 40 years, I wonder why there's more consideration being given. Increasing density in a manner that's not supported by the infrastructure then to the people who have sustained our neighborhood for so many years.
7: But Alder Grant Foster says that the apartment building is needed for the area. Uh, from my perspective, this is absolutely uh,
3: an excellent project. Through that year-long process, is very much context sensitive, um, really fits in well with the location. It's a great opportunity to
7: add some much-needed housing um, and has and done so really thoughtfully. Foster also noted that three of the six properties immediately surrounding the church have voiced their support for the new plan. The decision to demolish the church, and to allow the building of an apartment building, passed on a 15-4 vote. Another controversial issue at last night's meeting was the plan to convert around 14% of the city's medians with planted beds to either concrete or turf. Originally, the plan was to alter or remove 110 planting beds, but that number was later reduced to 90. As previously reported, the move to alter the median stems from budget cuts. Ultimately, the amendment to replace the planted beds failed by a 13 to 6 vote, as budget amendments need a three-quarters vote to pass. The council also voted last night to begin the process of building a new water treatment system to remove PFAS chemicals from well 15, which has been shut down for years due to a concentration of PFAS chemicals, right at the safety standards set by the state health department. Under the resolution, the city would contract with the nationwide engineering firm AECOM to design a treatment facility for WELL-15. That resolution was passed by a unanimous vote. Finally, the city voted to remove a so-called racial quota for members of the Police Civilian Oversight Board from city ordinance. The board was established in 2020 after years of discussion. When the council created the board, it wrote into city ordinance that the board must contain at least one black, Asian, Latino, Native American, and LGBTQ member. Additionally, the council also adopted an ordinance to have at least half of the board members be black. That requirement is the subject of a civil rights lawsuit against the city filed by conservative local blogger and former local politician David Blaska, who is represented in the case by the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty, or WILL, a conservative legal firm. Will told WORT last month that they would be willing to drop the lawsuit if the language is changed and if the city pays Blaska attorneys' fees and damages. City Attorney Michael Haas told WORT last month that the current makeup of the board would not change.
8: The proposed ordinance would slightly change the uh, language that the city council originally passed governing how members of the Civilian Oversight Board are appointed. And essentially what it does is take out a requirement that members come from different racial backgrounds and it changes that language to say that the city will strive to obtain membership that includes individuals of, of those backgrounds.
7: That ordinance change was passed with a unanimous vote. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hell.
0: Time is now 6:22 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
1: Last Friday, a federal appeals court ruled that utility companies building the Cardinal Hickory Creek power line cannot cross the Mississippi River. The judges upheld a ruling from earlier this year when a judge ruled that the environmental review for the line was inadequate. The ruling is a win for the conservation groups who brought forward the lawsuit. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wickehaupt spoke with Howard Lehner, the lead attorney representing the the conservation groups.
7: So Howard, I don't really think we need to go over the whole history of the Cardinal Hickory Creek line, so let's just sort of jump right in. What happened on Friday?
3: What did the judge rule? Last week, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, uh, that's a step above the district court and one step below the U.S. Supreme Court denied the transmission companies motion to stay the district court's order. So as you may remember, the district court ruled very strongly in favor of the conservation groups. In large part, it granted our motions for summary judgment. It found that the environmental impact statement that was done was skewed, it was unfair, it was wrong as a matter of law. The court vacated and remanded it. And the court ruled that the transmission companies could not cross and run smack through the Protected Upper Mississippi River National Wildlife and Fish Refuge. That's federal land. It's protected. It's a national wildlife refuge. It's a gem of the national wildlife system in the Midwest, fourth most visited in the country. It's the wrong place in terms of common sense, and it's the wrong place legally for the transmission companies to run their huge 345 kV high-voltage transmission line with up to 20-story-tall towers. So the judge's ruling U.S. District Court for the Western District of Wisconsin, very strongly in the conservation group's favor. Transmission companies appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, and they argued that the district court's decision was wrong. They thought they were highly likely to prevail on their appeal, and therefore they asked for a stay, and the Seventh Circuit issued an order last Friday, the three-judge panel held that the stay motion was denied, and what that means is the court was not persuaded that the transmission companies are likely to prevail on their appeal or that the transmission companies had suffered irreparable harm. The real problem is, notwithstanding what the district court decided, they're doing exactly what the district court warned against It said you shouldn't create an orchestrated train wreck. Well, what orchestrated train wreck means here is that the transmission companies are plowing ahead, they're building and bulldozing, and they're running their proposed transmission line and the tall towers, you know, starting over in Middleton, going across the heart of the Driftless area, cutting a wide swath then right over to the edge of the National Wildlife Refuge. They're wasting consumers' money, they're creating unnecessary property damage and environmental harms, and they're going up to the edge of the refuge and then they're going to say well we're here we get to go across well that's not legal that's just pure bullying the district court called it an orchestrated train wreck and really called them out on it and the seventh circuit when they became aware of that said that the stay motion is denied
7: And so now we've really gone over a lot of the history of everything that's happened with this. But from more of a legal standpoint, I know you are uh, the lead attorney for this case. So why is it why specifically is it illegal for these utility companies to build this line through the refuge?
3: First of all, under the National Environmental Policies Act, NEPA, they're supposed to do alternatives and take a really hard look at alternatives that have less harmful, less adverse environmental impacts. So even early on in the process, the U.S. EPA submitted a comment and said, can't you look at routes that wouldn't go right through the middle of the protected National Wildlife Refuge? But even more fundamentally, there's a federal law. It's the National Wildlife Refuge System Improvement Act of 1997 that prohibits big projects from going through protected national wildlife refuges. A national wildlife refuge, in this case, the Upper Mississippi National Wildlife and Fish Refuge was created by Congress in 1924. And it was created to protect these vital public lands in terms of biodiversity and wildlife, natural areas, the waterways, it's to protect them. Running a huge transmission line with up to 20 story tall towers through a National Wildlife Refuge just defies common sense. It undermines the purpose of a protected National Wildlife Refuge. And as the district court found, it violates the 1997 Act of Congress, the National Wildlife Refuge System Improvement Act. And the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Wisconsin issued a final judgment declaring that the transmission company's line cannot cross the Protected National Wildlife Refuge. they got to go on another route. They can go north. They can go south. They can try to find another route. they got to take a hard look at those alternatives because they knew from the very beginning, and the US EPA warned about this. You can't go through a Protected National Wildlife Refuge. This isn't a new law. This is a law that Congress passed in 1997. You know, that's 25 years ago. But the transmission company said they're going to plow through the National Wildlife Refuge. And the U.S. District Court said, no, you can't.
7: I've been talking with Howard Lerner with the Environmental Law and Policy Center and lead attorney for the conservation groups looking to stop the completion of the Cardinal Hickory Creek line. Howard, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here today. You're welcome.
3: Glad to join you and your listeners.
0: And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News on WORT. Stay with us for the second half. A new study shows how climate change is affecting walleye populations in Wisconsin. Madison in the 60s looks at big changes on Mansion Hill on a boisterous bongo party. And uh, I'll talk about some boisterous thunderstorms that may be coming at us in a couple of days. So stay tuned for all the details on that.
1: But first, we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash.
0: The time is now 6.32 and 45 seconds, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us.
1: A recent report from the UW-Madison Center for Limnology shows that walleye populations are declining around the state. The fish has long been regarded as the state's top game fish and has been a selling point to anglers around the world. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt spoke with Jack Finer, research scientist at the school and at the Wisconsin DNR, as well as the lead author of the report. They talk about the role climate change plays in the declining population and what anglers can do to help the fish.
7: So, Zach, just to kick some things off here, what's the current state of walleye here in Wisconsin? What's happening to the walleye population?
9: Yeah, the walleye populations, particularly in inland lakes, which is where this report was focused, uh, are generally declining. So, what we're seeing is that walleye recruitment, which is the survival of baby fish um, to the next year and kind of next generation, has generally been poor over the past decade or two. Um, so, in inland lakes, walleye are generally declining, although in other places like rivers, for example, they seem to be doing better.
7: And then, why is this? significant. Why is the decline in walleye populations concerning to you?
9: Yeah, so I think one reason it's concerning is that walleye are, I think, one of the flagship species when people think about recreational fisheries in the state, right, probably up there with muskie, for example. Um, In addition, walleye are a really important resource uh, for the Ojibwe peoples in the northern third of the state. So they go out and they have a tribal harvest as well, um, and that's an important food source and, and traditionally an important source of uh, food for them. Um, so these declines are really important because they're threatening some of this, this really important recreational fishery. They're also threatening this really important tribal fishery. And we need to try and understand what's happening so we can develop some different management strategies to think about how to counteract these changes or how to adapt our management strategies in the future.
7: And so, then looking at the walleye population, so that's declining, but other fish species like bass and bluegill, you say are uh, either holding steady or on the rise. Why is that? Why are some species of fish doing fine here in Wisconsin while others are shrinking? Isn't all Wisconsin water the same?
9: Yeah, no. So, Wisconsin waters are actually really diverse. And so, one of the really cool things about Wisconsin is that we have a diverse water bodies in the state, right? We have really deep, cold lakes that have cold water and cool water species like walleye. We also have shallow, warm water lakes that have species like largemouth bass. And to answer your question, uh, the main thought is that climate change is behind a lot of these changes. So lakes are becoming warmer, and species like walleye are cool water, so they prefer cool uh, temperatures, colder water. And while Largemouth bass and bluegill and other species like that are warm water species. So as lakes warm, while are actually losing habitat and kind of quality of habitat and warm water species like bass are gaining habitat and quality of habitat. So we think that's kind of acting as a lever to kind of tip the scales toward warm water species um, as climate change continues to warm up our lakes. So one interesting okay
7: aspect of the port, at least in my opinion, is the work of Holly Emke, a research fish biologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. What can you sort of tell me about her study? She sort of looked at walleye populations in one specific lake, correct?
9: Right, yeah. So the idea behind that study was that um, walleye are kind of losing out to warm water species like bass and bluegill, those family species called centrarchids. so they make up a lot of the common sunfish species I think folks fish for Um, And the idea was if we can remove bass and bluegill, that might kind of open a window for walleye in that lake to rebound and open up some more resources and maybe some more habitat for them. So she threw an immense amount of effort at trying to remove bass, bluegill, pumpkin seed, and other centrarchid uh, species from that lake and then monitored the responses of the fish community over time. And what she found is that despite removing Uh, hundreds of thousands of fish from this lake over a few years that we really didn't see much rebound in walleye populations. So it's really suggesting that, A, a super intense amount of effort like this that really isn't feasible for most management agencies is not effective, which means that uh, it might be other factors like habitat and climate uh, that are limiting walleye from rebounding in some of these places where the lakes have just simply gotten too warm for them. And that these removal efforts really are probably not a way to go Uh, in thinking about how to either restore walleye or think about how to manage these lakes moving forward.
7: And then sort of looking at the final bit of the uh, report there, what sort of conclusion did you come to with your studies and this report? What what can be done here to sort of uh, mitigate the decline of the walleye population?
9: Yeah, so the idea... behind the report was to really understand what we're doing now and what we have to do in the future. And what we realized that all the things that we're focusing on right now are types of resistance strategies, right? We're trying to resist the effects of climate change to keep walleye populations going in as many lakes as possible um, where they currently are. And what we've arrived at at the report is that we may need to start thinking about in the future, adjusting to some more kind of acceptance strategies or maybe even some more directional strategies. So the idea there is that in lakes, where it really doesn't seem like things like stocking or harvest management are going to be able to rehabilitate walleye just because they've warmed up so much that they've lost habitat, it may be time to start thinking about how we adjust our uh, expectations for those lakes and maybe start thinking about developing other fisheries like bass and bluegill, for example, and really start working with uh, stakeholders like uh, recreational anglers also working with uh, tribal fishers to understand what they need out of that lake and how we might adjust their expectations and adjust their strategies to still give them a usable fishery. So they'll still be fishing that lake. There'll still be resources there to enjoy, but it might just be a different type of fishery moving forward. Um, this is to say that walleye are, are going to be gone everywhere in Wisconsin. There are lots of places where walleye are doing quite well. They do really well in our rivers, for example, and there are lakes where they do really well. And that will be another focus of this research is identifying the bright spots. So, In other words, focusing on the places where walleye seem to be doing really well and are projected to do really well in the future and really focus on protecting those so we can maintain some of these walleye populations um, for as long as we can and keep those opportunities out on the landscape for recreational and tribal fishers the like.
7: And so if I'm understanding the report correctly, what you're sort of looking for is sort of a, a cultural shift from looking at fishing for walleye as for sport as opposed to bass or bluegills or other fish such as that is, is am I understanding that correctly and is that going to be do you see that as something that might be difficult to do for uh, sports fishermen?
9: Absolutely. I mean I think we do we don't expect it to be easy, but I do think that anglers are more flexible often than we give them credit for. I mean, it's important to maintain walleye on the landscape. And as I said, walleye will be on the landscape in a lot of places. They might just need to travel a little bit further to find those uh, places if you're really interested in fishing for walleye. But I think there will be growing opportunities for things like warm water species like bass and bluegill, which are a great table fair and they're uh, really fun to fish for. So I think you will really be working on the kind of social side of fisheries, uh, to develop the social acceptability and kind of the social ability to adapt to those new opportunities and be able to take them when they arise. And that's gonna take a lot of work in communication with the DNR and Glyphwick and tribal agencies as well as recreational fishers and um, other organizations. But I think it's possible because we've seen these types of shifts in angler attitudes and target species in the past. Um, so I think it's will be important to continue to, to, to uh, develop in the future.
7: As an angler myself, I can attest to the uh, both fun of catching and the tastiness of both bass and bluegill. Well, Zach, uh, do you have just any final thoughts for me? Anything that we didn't
9: cover uh, that you'd like to share? No, I think you've covered it really well. I mean, this paper is really just an initial survey of the landscape of fisheries management in Wisconsin. And then thinking about what we need to do in the future is because we have a lot of studies that have projected climate change and changes in fish habitat, for example. Um, so it's really going to be understanding where these changes are going to be occurring, and this paper is a first stab at thinking about what are the next steps in in fisheries management that we might need to take. Um, so this is going to be a developing process uh, as we move forward and get a better understanding of what the impacts are. Maybe we can develop some new strategies to keep walleye in some places. Um, but the main takeaway is, you know, right now we're doing a lot of resistance, and, and in the future I think it'll be time to think more about where can we accept some change and how do we deal with that change.
7: I've been talking with Zach Feiner, research scientist at UW-Madison Center for Limnology and the Wisconsin DNR, as well as the lead author on the report on the struggling walleye population here in Wisconsin. Zach, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me
9: here today. Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru Rob McClure.
0: Well, I warned you last week that you might be pining for a 60-degree high temperature again once we got into the middle of this week. And uh, given the robustness of this current warm-up, which has so far exceeded uh, expectations in almost every respect. Even I would like a cool down. I'm quite a fan of hot weather. Our back-to-back 90-degree high temperatures yesterday and today trashed the previous records by 3 and 5 degrees, respectively. And the sweltering overnight in between helped set a new high minimum temperature for the 10th of May at 68 degrees. And we'll be setting a new one for the 11th in a few hours, unless uh, we somehow miraculously drop to 65 degrees. Uh, Anyway, uh, the two same records uh, almost certainly will get knocked out of the park again tomorrow, the way it's looking. We managed to avoid a blow-up of thunderstorms both yesterday and today, although there was a tremendous amount of upward-directed potential energy in the air column. In fact, I think my colleague Caitlin Davis actually read out the figure last night in joules per kilogram. Uh, And at the same time, uh, there was little in the way of atmospheric capping these past couple of days to contain that energy. And both afternoons also saw a lake breeze from Lake Michigan blow inland a good way. And today we also had a cold frontal boundary pushing south as well. So very good prospects for popping thunderstorms. And it seemed that neither of those low-level boundaries were going to provide the needed upward impetus to get that convection going. Until about an hour ago when finally the lake breeze down to our south helped pop a pretty vigorous cell down along the Illinois border between Rock and Lafayette counties. Though that should uh, As we go through the evening, those two boundaries are quite evident from space this evening. If you want to have a look at them on the visible satellite imagery that we have linked on the WORT, WORT Weather webpage, Uh, There's both a local view there and a kind of wider view of the Midwest in the featured graphics section. On either one of those, you can see the dense cumulus field over northern Illinois and southern Wisconsin in the early hours of the day, getting pushed back westward and a bit southward by those two boundaries I was mentioning, with the corner between the two actually crossing Madison a few hours ago now. That's what cleared the cumulus out of the sky and started up the easterly winds. You can also see the haze of ice crystals up in the uh, upper atmosphere above the cumulus blowing eastward off of thunderstorms out on the plains. Indeed, if you're looking at the Midwest image, you can actually see the thunderstorm towers themselves boiling skyward around the periphery of the upper ridge with its hot air sitting basically from here back westward to the central Dakotas and then north up to about the Canadian border almost. That ridge is going to take one more day or perhaps a day and a half to traverse eastward past us. And with its axis pretty much overhead tomorrow, the prognosis would generally be for clear skies and hot temperatures. Though prognostic soundings, uh, as with the past couple days, again for tomorrow, show little in the way of capping. And some of the shorter range models are also indicating that uh, continuing moisture inflow, like we saw today, may build a cumulus enough tomorrow to either dampen the temperatures a bit or even possibly set off another scattered shower or two. Uh, That could hold us off a third 90 degree in a row, but I think we're likely to at least crush the previous record, which is uh, a high of 86. And uh, dew points in the low or mid-70s tomorrow will in any event make the day sultry enough, even without us hitting 90. Showers and thunderstorms will hold uh, pretty much to our north and west uh, tomorrow night, but approach uh, much more closely... Uh, or tonight, I should say, but approach more closely tomorrow night as the cold front on the backside of the upper ridge starts to approach. So far, it appears the precipitation will mostly hold west of us through much of tomorrow night as well, with perhaps a remnant line of thunderstorms then approaching as we enter the day Friday. Uh, That will help provide slight cooling that day. The frontal boundary, in fact, may end up uh, slowing down and basically kind of bifurcating the area south to north on Friday along which thunderstorms may re-erupt as diurnal heating gets going. So midday or afternoon thunderstorms are fairly likely, I think, by uh, late in the day on Friday. And uh, with deep moisture still overhead and the slow eastern progress of that boundary, it's possible we may see some training thunderstorm cells moving from southwest to northeast that day, potentially putting down some fairly heavy rains. I should note that a number of the models keep precipitation also quite scattered on Friday, so a bit of a tough call as far as precipitation goes that day. Winds will finally fear west and northwest Saturday behind a second cold front, uh, which may produce overnight thunderstorms, and that should uh, take us down to the mid-70s for high temperatures on Saturday. That's still pretty warm for this time of year. We'll be back in the 60s, though, on Sunday. So just to drop a few uh, details onto that forecast, tonight we'll continue to see passing high clouds mostly. Those may thicken downward some with additional debris clouds from thunderstorms to our west as we get on later in the night. The thunderstorms down towards the Illinois border will start to dissipate as the sun goes down later on tonight. Temperatures will hold in the low 70s on southeasterly winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour, bearing more southerly by dawn. Tomorrow will be hot and I think mostly clear despite some of the short range model uncertainty. So I'll, I guess I'll stick by my 90 degree high temperature prediction with the dew points holding in the low 70s. Southerly winds at 8 to 15 miles per hour will come down a bit as we go overnight with a low temperature around 70. Cloud cover is likely to thicken up in the overnight with uh, showers and thunderstorms passing through in the wee hours of Friday or maybe around dawn that day. And I think Friday may see some redevelopment down of the thunderstorms in the midday or afternoon hours, uh, with northeast moving cells working slowly to the east as we go later in the day and overnight. And eventually out of the area, that precipitation may be uh, also somewhat scattered. Temperatures will reach the low and mid-80s, depending on uh, cloud cover to some extent, and also precipitation. A second round of thunderstorms, uh, as I mentioned, will get going later in the day and overnight with a low temperature in the mid-60s. And precipitation should work east of the area Saturday, allowing us to return to the uh, mid or perhaps upper 70s on lighter westerly winds. We will be slightly cooler Sunday and again Monday, but warm again as we go later in next week, the way it's appearing at the moment. Just now, down at the station on Bedford Street, the temperature is 81 degrees. The dew point temperature is a sticky 70. Uh, plenty of high cirrus up at about 30,000 feet or so over the station. Winds are out of the southeast. Uh, 20 miles per hour was recorded out at the airport as a uh, as a uh, te- uh, 20 miles per hour was recorded as a wind speed, and the barometer is falling at 30.04 inches of mercury.
1: It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to May 1963, when big changes were afoot on Mansion Hill and in the Triangle. Pregnant school teachers got a break, and student radicals showed solidarity with blue-collar workers. Stu Levitan has the headlines from 59 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s.
8: Melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, May 1963. The month opens with big news on Big Bug Hill, as the Findorf Construction Company sells one of Mansion Hill's great mansions, the William F. Vilas House at 12 East Gilman across Wisconsin Avenue from the Edgewater. Parks activists tried to get the city to buy the large lakefront property for a public use, but it goes instead to the National Guardian Life Company for its new headquarters, a modernist black cube. The 104-year-old mansion is raised on May 23rd. And big news in a quite different neighborhood, the Triangle Urban Renewal District, as the Common Council reverses a long-standing policy and will now allow property owners to move their buildings rather than see them knocked down. The Council directs the Madison Redevelopment Authority to take bids to move those buildings in good enough shape. May 2nd is quite a night on campus. At the Union Theater, United Auto Workers Union President Walter Ruther tells a capacity crowd that America is, quote, smug, complacent, and indifferent and needs a stronger sense of national purpose, including progress on civil rights. While up the hill in 272 Bascom Hall, beat poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti reads to a rapt overflow crowd. It's the last event on the Poets 1963 series, sponsored by the Union Literary Committee and the Athenian Society. On the 6th, the faculty makes voluntary ROTC permanent as a two-year trial period maintains sufficient participation. Compulsory ROTC would have returned if fewer than 146 students, representing 75% of the 1959 level of 195 students enrolled, 178 registered in 1961, and 155 in 1962, so the program stays voluntary. And at the end of the month, two-time All-American Pat Richter, the only Badger since 1923 to earn nine varsity letters and the holder of 17 school conference or national receiving records, signs with the Washington franchise of the National Football League, where he joins fellow East High Pergolder and Badger Dale Hackbart. Pregnant school teachers can now work an additional two months as the city school board votes to let them remain at work until the 20th week of pregnancy. The old policy required them to resign at 12 weeks. Superintendent Robert Gilbert says that, quote, the biggest reason for turnover is that we have a lot of young married women who teach for us. And West Side Schools, along with fire stations and the Lion House at the Vilas Park Zoo, are among the first of 28 Madison-area public buildings to receive supplies for fallout shelters. There are approximately 150,000 shelter spaces in the city, about half in downtown public buildings that are inaccessible at night. The Citizens Committee to Eliminate Civil Defense calls the fallout shelter program, quote, useless and futile, and a waste of money. On the 14th, the City Welfare Board formalizes its policy of cutting off relief payments for recipients who don't try hard enough to find work. The dole, while economically satisfying, is psychologically crippling, the board declares. Welfare Director Elma Christensen says the board's policies, quote, weren't meant to be punitive, but in some cases they have to be. The board also wants the work-for-relief policy to apply to non-Madison residents, which it currently doesn't. Christensen predicts that would cut the caseload substantially. A mid-May midnight bongo party in the historic First Lutheran Church out in the town of Middleton soon attracts some unwelcome attention. Dane County deputies, who arrest 22 persons whom they describe as, quote, "...real beatniks," including 11 UW students. Members of the interracial group, including 1950s UW football star Lowell Gooch Jenkins, are charged with criminal trespass and disorderly conduct. A piano player and some other musicians slip out a window and avoid arrest. When church officials testify that the building at the corner of Old Sauk and Pleasant Valley Roads was unlocked and essentially abandoned, and the deputies testify that the rhythm enthusiasts were polite and respectful, Judge William Bensley dismisses all counts, but makes each defendant write a letter of apology. And a big story of worker-student solidarity. On May 24th, the 12 mechanics, represented by the United Auto Workers Local 443, frustrated at the lack of progress in their contract negotiations, goes on strike against Bruns Volkswagen on North Stoughton Road. They set up a picket line, but the company stays open with scabs from Rockford, Illinois. That's when mathematics grad student C. Clark Kissinger, chair of the Wisconsin Socialist Club, An organizer of the fledgling Madison chapter of the Students for a Democratic Society offers to, quote, get some of my friends to come out and see if we could close the place down. The next Saturday, 30 picketers from SDS and UAW turn away virtually every potential customer. The strikers start their own garage, and Kissinger begins printing a weekly paper, Picket Line News, distributed throughout Madison. The strike would have certainly collapsed without student intervention, Kissinger tells the SDS National Office, which he would run as national secretary in 1964-66. Even the strikers admit this, he says. With the action ongoing, accusations fly, and in July the Wisconsin Employment Relations Board holds hearings into the company's complaint of unfair labor practices by the union. That's when Police Captain George Skiro testifies that the company, claiming union threats and violence, is paying 34 policemen $3 an hour to work as private security guards while still in uniform. Madison is the only city of any size in Wisconsin to allow police in uniform to work as private security during a strike. W.E.R.B. Chairman Morris Slavny tells Skiro that's a bad idea because it gives the appearance, quote, that the forces of law and order might be taking sides, which might just add a little more fuel to the dispute. Mayor Henry Reynolds calls Slavny's comments, quote, very appropriate and recommends that officers, quote, refrain from this sort of thing. If police protection is needed, it should be given in the normal course of duty. Within days, Reynolds and Police Chief Wilbur Emery make the policy official, banning off-duty officers from strike security work. They eventually restrict off-duty work even further, requiring all in-uniform moonlighting pay to be handled through the city's payroll system. The strike ends in mid-December after a National Labor Relations Board examiner finds the company guilty of unfair labor practices and orders reinstatement of the striking workers. Contract talks continue. And these dueling headlines on May 6th, in the morning's Wisconsin State Journal, an exciting downtown Madison. That afternoon in the Capital Times, crisis developing in downtown Madison. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this
0: evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporters were Catherine Garbins and Cameron Costanzo. Special thanks to feature contributors Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan mixed our sounds live on the air this evening. Nate helped produce the newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure.
1: And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. WORT Madison.